Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. You might know Christian Finnegan from his stand-up, or from his role on the series Are We There Yet, or from VH1's Best Week Ever, or from the infamous Chappelle show Mad Real World Sketch. What you might not know is that Christian fell into comedy almost by accident, or that he lost both of his brothers and his mother to heart problems, or that he had a heart surgery himself just about a year ago, or that he's parlayed his lifelong love of music into a weekly newsletter called New Music for Olds that you should definitely subscribe to. Our conversation covers issues of race, morality, mortality, and more, with a few jokes thrown in as well. I hope you enjoy listening. Here's Christian. Hi there, my name is Christian Finnegan. I am a uh, stand-up comedian and occasional writer and performer. You may recognize me from the Acton-Boxborough Regional High School production of Grease in 1988, and or maybe as a guest on the John McEnroe Show, not once, but twice. Whoa, John McEnroe had a show? He had a talk show on CNBC around the early 2000s, like 2001-ish. And nobody Ooh. watched it. Hey, I mean, <laughs> my reaction, I certainly didn't watch it. I didn't know it existed. No. Nope. I did. I performed stand-up. My first tele- televised stand-up set was on the John McEnroe show. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, uh, that was, uh, that was a bit a of a surprise. when I get yeah. it. I get yeah. It. Uh, but I continue. Think the lead You're... guest was Ric Flair, wrestler. When Ric Flair is your A-guest, and you are not a wrestling program. I feel like that that speaks a little bit to what kind of show you're operating, and how long you can count on being on the air. Yeah, exactly. Even the Magic Hour had better uh, better guests than the John McEnroe <laughs> show. Oh, the Magic Hour! But yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Should I have given it a punchier ending? I <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I'm still kind of like bugging out about the fact that john mack did he throw shit no it's like how many times can he go to that you can't be serious i, I think it's one of those things where and he seemed like a very nice dude i don't mean to speak ill of him he's a legend in his field and all that yeah. but it was like being a very entertaining commentator is not the same as being a host right you know what i mean being a good guest is not the same as being a good host because i remember he would go on letterman and he'd be kind of a charming kind of curb but yeah it was him sort of wearing a lot of chains 
like kind of like middle-aged white dude chains in, on a black t-shirt with a blazer and i don't know if he had true religion jeans on but i had that vibe oh wow I, i'm gonna have to hit youtube up and, and go look that stuff up so i know you originally from best week ever yeah and also the mad real world sketch on Chappelle's show the role i was born to play yeah <laughs> And stand up and all kinds of other stuff. The first question is, have you been performing your whole life? And if so, what led you to to becoming a performer? I started doing like the school plays pretty early, maybe not elementary school, but junior high and whatnot, and started trying out for the school musical and was in the chorus and all that stuff. Was it like a, a push or were you just like, man, I want to act? No, there was no pushing. My dad did, he did push me at one point to try to join a Catholic choir in downtown Boston. He wanted me to be one of those, not altar boys, but wearing the altar boy outfit behind the priest singing. And that didn't really take, but he was not really, my dad is a solid dude, but I don't think theater really occurred to him as an option. Okay. Yeah. Sign you up for football, sign you up for soccer, all of which I did. But it definitely was not where my talents lay. And so, yeah, once I started to become an actual person where you start to exercise some free will, I started going more to the artsy stuff. All right. And pre-college, were you doing arts programs or anything specific related to the arts? I was. After my freshman year of high school, I went to Boston University summer theater camp for like six weeks. And and then my junior and senior year of high school, I went to a performing arts boarding school called Walnut Hill School for the Performing Arts, Performing and Visual Arts now in Natick, Massachusetts. And that was kind of double duty. It was uh, definitely because I wanted to be an actor at the time and, and all those things. But also I wanted to not live at home for various reasons. And so it served uh, a dual purpose. Gotcha. I. I do want to talk about why you did not want to live at home. But before that, two things that I have not heard in the same sentence before are performing arts and boarding school. Yeah. What, what, what the hell was that like? I, were there people doing routines in, in the dorms all the time? Like, I mean, people are like, oh, was it like fame? I guess a little bit. What I always tell people, it was half prodigies and half fuck ups. <laughs> so it was like the best... 13-year-old cellist from Taiwan who's world-class and is renowned in the cello world, and Keith, who got kicked out of three boarding schools for being a drug addict. And so I guess that means he's a painter, that kind of deal. It definitely was very artsy-fartsy, and there were a lot of goth kids. And a lot of the battles that people are fighting now about pronouns and binary and, and all that stuff was stuff that a lot of the kids in my high school were going through. Oh, wow. Um, the, the kids who went there fashioned themselves as avant-garde, whether they sure. were or weren't. A lot of them were doing an imitation of what they thought a deep, sensitive poet type person might do. But there was a lot of performative nonconformity. But I mean, <laughs> and I, me too. I, I remember there was a, a girl who I was dating and she would always talk about how like men and women are 95% the same and we shouldn't make these distinctions between men and women. And sometimes when we were walking across the campus, she would make me hold her arm to make some sort of 
social, sociopolitical point, (laughs) which I did because I've never kind of hung my hat on being like a manly man anyway. So generally speaking, if a woman that I'm involved with tells me to do something, I do it. (laughs) That's some might say that's the right thing to do. You could. There's definitely arguments to be made for it. Yeah. Leaning on the sitcom tropes here. It served me well. So. I'm curious as to why you chose to go to a boarding school as opposed to, I feel like when 90% of the time when I've heard boarding school in the past, it's because somebody fucked something up and got sent to it. Right. It wasn't quite that. I, I, um, my younger brother, he had heart surgery when he was like three days old and he had heart surgery again when he was two, he was basically in the hospital his entire childhood. And so as a result, my family was very much tied up in him, understandably. And my older brother was doing all right, but I was a little bit falling through the cracks. And also my mother and I had some discord. She had struggled with some mental illness issues and I just, I wasn't doing super well. And my parents had had split up and my dad kind of knew that I was drowning, but wasn't really in a position to, I couldn't really live with him. And so he kind of nudged me to think about going to the school. And I knew a couple people who went there. I had known a a girl who I'd gone out with in junior high school had gone there. And so I knew her mom and her mom was very encouraging. And so luckily I had a few people kind of in my corner to get me to a place where I could be. I was never doing like drugs or anything, but I had major insomnia. I wouldn't sleep for days at a time and, and I would fall asleep in all my classes and it just was the kind of thing where my dad intervened and was like, hey, maybe we should get you somewhere else. Right. Wow. As you're going through this, there's another trope. I'm just going to go all out on the tropes today. The trope, trope it out, yeah, maybe. The trope of most people who are funny being funny because there's some sort of darkness that they're trying to kind of cancel out with the funniness. Was that why you leaned into theater and, and comedy specifically? Or did you just want to be funny? Not consciously. I never wanted to do comedy until probably about a week before I started doing it. Oh, shit. Like, I look back now and I realize, oh, I was actually a huge comedy fan. Like I used to fantasize about hosting SNL and things like that. When I owned Steve Martin albums that I played a lot and, and Woody Allen albums and George Carlin. And so I knew a lot about comedy more than I guess the average kid may have. But it never really occurred to me. I think it's because I came of age in that mid 80s when kind of comedy was at its corniest, (laughs) when it was all over basic cable and it was a bunch of dudes wearing purple blazers with the sleeves pushed up. I found it very corny. I mean, I guess there's no better word for it. And I fashioned myself as being an artiste. I've read the short stories of Raymond Carver and got a lot out of them and (laughs) wrote poetry that was awful. And so (laughs) it didn't really occur to me until after I graduated college, I went to college as an actor, but then by the time I graduated, I was a playwriting major. And and then after college, I worked in publishing for a couple of years. And I thought I was going to be a writer, but I really wasn't doing any writing. And I missed performing, but I didn't want to be an actor again. And there was this new magazine that had just come out called Time Out New York. And the listing section in Time Out New York was much better than the village voice and things like that. And so you could go day by day. And so I spent a few months when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I went to poetry slams or I went to improv shows. I went to avant-garde theater stuff. And I ended up at this place called Surf Reality, which was down the Lower East Side. 
and they would have this open mic night that went Sundays from like eight o'clock until like three in the morning. And it was stand up comedian followed by poet, followed by burlesque performer, followed by some guy ranting about Mayor Giuliani <laughs> for 10 minutes. And, and it was uh, an anything goes kind of place. And that's sort of what got me into it. I think that if I had started in the clubs, like directly in the clubs, my snob instincts would have kicked in too much and it probably would have stopped me from pursuing it. But these quote unquote alternative performance spaces felt more welcoming to an artiste like myself. <laughs> Just getting up and doing the hackiest stuff, but thinking I was an artist. But I've watched some of my my like stand up tapes from the first couple of years and they're indefensible. I, awful, awful. I feel like most people look back on things that they recorded or made 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, I look at high school pictures and I'm just like, oh, who is that guy? So mm -hmm. you're probably not the most objective person. Well, it's funny. I, I feel like you get to a certain point where you get into your 30s and you're like, oh, my God, I was such a loser in high school or such a weirdo in high school. And then you get to an age where I am and you're like, actually, I think I was kind of cool. <laughs> you kind of come around on it again, or you don't necessarily think you were cool, but that high school person feels less remote to me now than he did 15 years ago, if that makes sense. I feel like I have more in common with my high school self now than I did in my 30s. That's really interesting. Maybe, maybe that's a me thing, but yeah. That's never occurred to me. I'm thinking like, do I feel close to my high school self? Because I'm how my, old are you? I'm 46. Oh, I'll be 46 in about a week and a half. Okay. So well, all right. and my 30th reunion is next year. Yeah. And I'm in Brooklyn. It's in Brooklyn. It it's it's such an easy trek to make. Mm. If I was living somewhere else, I'd be like, fuck that shit. But because <laughs> I can hop on the train and take it to Barclays and then walk to my high school, I feel like it, it would be blame right. blame to not go. It would be a statement to not go. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I remember I went with my wife to her 20-year high school reunion in Texas. And afterwards, she was like, I don't know. I didn't really enjoy it as much as I was hoping. And I was like, well, it's because you're all on Facebook. Yeah. Like, you, you already know who's fat now and <laughs> whose kids are drug addicts and who's successful and who's not. So I think a lot of what made reunions a big deal have kind of been negated by social media. Social media. Absolutely. Did you go to school in Massachusetts or did you go to school here in New York? I went to, to NYU. college. Okay, you went to NYU. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was there a conscious effort to move to and then stay in New York? There was. Again, this is just maybe my contrary nature, but growing up in Massachusetts, especially in the 80s, it was New York sucks and Yankees suck and everything was so anti-New York. And at a certain point, it was like, well, you guys all hate New York and I hate you. So maybe that's the place for me. I, I truly had that feeling. I remember when I was 13 or 14, I knew a, a woman who had gone to NYU and it just seemed like I didn't even know that was allowed for us to move to New York. I didn't think that was on the table. I thought that would just be like moving to hell or something. Um, <laughs> Permanently banished. And so once I got it into my head, I only applied to New York schools. I applied to Sarah Lawrence, which is just outside of right the city, but it was always, all my schools were all here in the city. Right. And then I, I hung my hat for a long time on the idea of being a New Yorker in a way that is kind of dumb, but I think a lot of suburban kids do, or suburban former kids who then become New Yorkers. It's like, it's almost like it does the work of having a personality <laughs> to be able to say you're a New Yorker. You don't have to oh, be man. interesting. You can say, ah, I live in New York. I'm interesting. 
And to some people, that is interesting. It kind of boggles my mind as someone who was born and largely raised here that people think New York is so interesting. Because when I travel, I'll go to Nashville or I'll go to Austin. I'll be like, this is kind of cool for a couple of days at least. Uh, yeah. what, what is I mean, the, that's, that's the difference. Yeah. It's, it's about a 10 block radius and it's only for a couple days. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I guess the thing about New York is that you can find infinite things to do at, at any given time. Yes. Well, I do wish that I had gone to college somewhere else now, just that I could have the experience of having lived. I mean, now having performed at so many colleges and having traveled so much for comedy, it does make me feel like, oh, I spent my entire college career kind of in denial of being a college student because that was kind of the NYU thing. I I always used to call NYU the degree that dare not speak its name (laughs) because nobody who went to NYU, they would say, oh, I take classes at NYU. And you got out of the dorms as quickly as humanly possible to move into an apartment. And it's so funny. Sometimes you'll see a movie where a character goes to NYU. That movie Life Itself, I remember seeing a horrible movie, but Oscar Isaac's character went to NYU and in his apartment, he has NYU banners and he's wearing like an NYU sweatshirt. It's like, okay, any suspension of disbelief just went out the window (laughs) because no, no self-respecting NYU student would be caught dead with like NYU flags in their apartment. Good to know. I mean, I I can't say (laughs) that I I see NYU swag on a a regular basis and I work pretty Maybe it's changed. I don't know about that, man. Maybe if you went to Stern Business School or something like that, but I can tell you as a Tisch student, that was verboten. (laughs) (laughs) It's all part of the romanticism that that so many people have of New York. And again, I get it, particularly if you come from a small town and what you see is what you see in TV and movies, you don't yeah. know the the actual city. And look, I, I love living here. So, I mean, I'm not going to diss New York. But uh, yeah, I'm at the point in my life now where like 10 years ago, my, my wife and I bought a little one bedroom cabin upstate that we go to. And it's great. And I love it. And it's totally something I never would have thought I would have wanted in my life because I hung so much of my identity on the idea of being a New Yorker. And I have no immediate plans to leave the city, but I'm not I'm not hung up on the idea like I wanted to be that gay Talese, that sort of 90-year-old New Yorker with an ascot yes. hanging out at the end of the bar. Yes. That was always my dream. I remember there's a bar I used to do comedy at in the late 90s called Yield Triple Inn on 54th Street. And it was one of those places where I don't know how it hung out in Midtown for as long as it did because it was a crappy dive bar, but it just happened to be in Midtown. And it was one of those places where it was like, turn off the hockey game, it's comedy time, and people would just get furious because uh, nobody was there for a comedy show. Right. But there was like an 85-year-old guy who used to sit down at the end of the bar and he had an ascot and he was always natally dressed. And I just thought, that dude is my role model. I want to be that guy. And I never had spoken to him. And then I finally asked if he could like pass the napkins or something like that. And he said, yes. And then I realized he had had a tracheotomy. And the oh, reason wow. he wore an ascot was to was cover, to cover up the his trach- uh, throat hole. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so all of a sudden, it, it seemed like maybe not quite the aspirational goal I had to Originally, I guess that changes as you get older, right? The allure of being an old guy in a city in a cosmopolitan place. I, I for me, at some point, I'm going to want quiet. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. when I was younger, I didn't think I needed quiet. And now it's like there's a train coming into the station that I can hear right now outside my window. It would yeah. be nice to just be able to not live on top of people and have space to myself and i don't need to own a house necessarily but yeah yeah 
But when I go up there, it's in the woods and I will sing at the top of my lungs just because I have the option to. It's like you just feel uh, an aloneness that you just never get here. And this is a bit of a leap and you would be able to speak to this better than me. But a lot of people, they come to New York or they get frustrated with kids on the subway who are really loud and jumping around and being chaotic or in the movie theaters and stuff like that. And my thing about that has always been like, these kids have never been alone before. They probably don't have their own bedrooms even. And even if they do, it's tiny and they're sharing on the other side of the wall as their brother or their sister or whatever. They don't have yards. They only can exist in public space. And so kids are going to be kids. So it's not like in the suburbs where I would go riding bikes with my friends around the neighborhood and we'd be in somebody's basement alone for four hours watch, playing video games. And then we could kind of be polite in public. If you're never alone, if you never have private personal space, you're just going to be a kid in public, which is annoying, obviously. Right. <laughs> yeah. You bring up a really interesting point. I, I didn't think about that too much, um, but you're right. These are kids that live in apartments or live in houses where you can hear the neighbor next door having conversations. It's just like you don't really have yeah. in a, a, a space completely to yourself. Yes. And yeah. so that's not something you factor into the way you behave on right. a moment to moment basis because it's just not something you're used to. And so, again, this is just a theory of mine, but, but I, I think that that is why people react so negatively to kids in the city sometimes when they're being rambunctious or whatever. It's just because they just don't understand, like, why don't they just go hang out in their yards? It's like after Katrina when all the people are like, why don't these people just go to their country homes? Guess what? You're in a minority here, buddy. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'm going to take a couple of left turns just because there are a few things that I want to ask you that are not germane to the current topic. One is you have actually done a lot of material that explores race, which I find interesting. I and even The Mad Real World was about you being kind of a dorky white guy in a house full of, of black people. Is that a premeditated thing that you've, you've wanted to do? Is that something that you've consciously tried to explore? It wasn't originally. At first, it just kind of became this sort of running joke. It's like there's something about me that people just say, I think it would be hilarious to see this guy interact with black people. And I mean, they're right in the sense that I grew up in a very white town. And it wasn't until I went to that boarding school, which was very multiracial, but it was multiracial for mostly kids who could afford to go to boarding school, which sure. is a slightly different subset of people. But I guess the Chappelle show thing was the thing that kind of got that started. And I hate when actors said, I knew that character like the back of my hand. But but literally when I read that sketch, it's like, oh, I know exactly how to do this because I am basically this dude. So <laughs> it wasn't a giant stretch for me. Right. And then a few years later, this Are We There Yet thing happened, which is funny because Ali Leroy, who's the guy who executive produced Are We There Yet, he hadn't seen me in the Chappelle show thing, but he still kind of singled me out he wanted that character. I was the white dude on Are We There Yet, which is a sitcom maybe you've seen when you're on the treadmill. You, you've seen me on mute um, <laughs> on a gym television. But he wanted a comedian to play that role. And he said that he was just going through the Comedy Central archives and sort of stumbled on me and then brought me in based on that, which is funny because I just assumed it was an outflow of the Chappelle show thing, but it apparently had nothing to do. And then after that, I, I did start kind of leaning into it a little bit. I did do some 
sort of stand-up material about it. And I don't know, I am an extremely sort of white dude, not just literally, but culturally. I mean, that's the world I grew up in. But I, I feel like I have a pretty progressive head on my shoulders when it comes to those things. And so sometimes I feel like I could maybe translate things to my fellow white people in a way that they might understand a little more. Do you know what I mean? Like that I know. Maybe, maybe that's my role is to sort of take all these sort of things that seem scary or urban, quote unquote, or whatever, and translate them to people who might otherwise dismiss the black culture and things like that. And, you know, that's a, a whoop. That's a very particular kind of allyship that I think is needed because I feel like there are parts of this country that are so divided and becoming more divisive in some ways. And and look, I'm a black guy. If I'm talking to a room of white people about racism or inclusion or microaggressions or anything like that, they're going to always look at it as from the lens of me being a black guy. Whereas you as a white guy saying this thing to white people, it's almost like, okay, this is a language that they can understand, even though we're saying the exact same thing. Yeah, I I would agree. And, And the way I always think about it is that you have something that's up on a high shelf. Sometimes a tall person is just going to be able to reach it easier. Do you know what I mean? Or if there's something that's in a tight space, like a really skinny, wiry person, you know, like some people have different abilities and different talents. Not everybody can reach the same people the same way. I'm talking out my butt a little bit here, but <laughs> I'm interested in it. And so I feel like the least I can do is I'm 49 now as I enter this phase of my life is not curdle into that bitter things were better the way they used to be, dude, <laughs> which is such a easy, tempting sort of pit to roll into. Mm-hmm. And that's not even just a white guy thing. I mean, I think that's what happened to Chappelle. I think it's what's happened to the Bill Mars of the world. It's like they think of themselves as being like, I've been consistent. Everybody else has gone crazy. It's like, right. no, you have slowly let your frame of reference curdle and you've stopped progressing. And now you're suspicious of anyone who still wants to move to forward. Progress right. is sort of the way I think of it. That's that's a very astute observation, I think. And obviously, when I'm talking about Chappelle, I'm more talking about the the trans issues yes. and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. What is it that keeps you progressing as you're approaching 50? Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Even in a place as conceivably liberal as New York, I, I think that there's kind of a, a hardening as, as people get older, no matter what surrounds you. What keeps you from turning into that hard person, into that, I know everything because I'm old and all of these people are changing around me kind of person? Yeah. One of the comments that kind of sets my teeth on edge is when people are like, I agree with liberals. I'm a liberal guy on most things. It's just these people are going crazy. And if you really look at that, and I know a lot of comedians who have said some variation of that phrase, really what they're saying is, I'm totally liberal as long as it doesn't require me to change my behavior or attitudes in any way, shape or form. But that's why it's like a lot of them are fine with gay marriage or abortion or whatever, at least kind of talking it off like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. But it's like, wait, you want me to change what I do? Well, then that's crazy. That's too far. You want me to stop saying some second tier slur like retard or something right. like that, just to use the context. I don't yeah. want to say the R word. It just sounds even sillier. But it's like, you you want me to stop saying that's crazy. Like I was fine with not saying the N word, but not saying the R word. Like that's crazy. Why is that crazy? But I, I don't know. There's just something that happens to a lot of people and specifically dudes as they get to a certain phase in their life. 
And especially when they start getting busy and they have kids and things like that, anybody who wants to make cultural changes just seems crazy or, or just juvenile. And it's so funny how this is the case. No matter where you are in the political spectrum, it seems like a lot of people feel like people to the right of me may have a point and I should probably hear them out. But anybody to the left of me is an idiot. Even people who are ostensibly, quote unquote, center left, sort of mainstream liberals, the sort of the Hillary crowd or whatever, they will look at Republicans and be like, well, let me hear this guy out. But if it's somebody like AOC, they're like, shut up. <laughs> sure. I get that. Right. And some of that, I mean, at least on AOC's part might be a, a gender thing, a cultural thing. I mean, you could sure, throw that but out whatever, a whole bunch pick, of different ways. Yeah, though, exactly. You know, Jamal no, I, Bowman, whatever. You yeah, know. totally get what you're saying. I guess the other thing, as, as you are getting older, I would assume mortality, particularly given your history, plays a, a pretty big part in how you view all of these things. Yeah. I'm just any day now. Bring it on. Well, no, uh, <laughs> no one would, we're not, no, stay. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I, yeah, as I mentioned when we were emailing about the show, both of my brothers had passed away. My younger brother passed away when he was 19. My older brother passed away when he was 37. And uh, both from heart related stuff. And my mother also passed away from heart surgery. And then I had open heart surgery last year. And so it's kind of a, a family theme. It's weird because I've always been super death obsessed, which is very strange. Like even before anybody in my family had died, when I look back at like papers I wrote, I mean, my younger brother, like I said, was in the hospital his whole life. So mm -hmm. there was always kind of that specter of mortality hanging over my family. Sure. But nobody had actually passed away when I was in high school and stuff. And yet I read things that I wrote then and it was all about like scenes we open on a funeral like that kind of thing and, and so i don't know what that is but i never felt particularly dark i pretended to be but i always felt like it was an act and now huh. i look back so no i think i actually was kind of dark i was goth <laughs> after all i thought i was faking it the whole time should have invested in more black clothing christian oh well first of all, i did because it's slimming first of all yeah no i i had a black turtleneck that i wore a lot when i was in my hardcore morrissey days and I had the pompadour and I had fake John Lennon glasses that I wore and a long black leather duster. I had one side of my head shaved. I had the whole deal going. That's almost like right out of the workbook. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> if there was a handbook, I would have just gone through and be like, okay, got to get that. Got to get that. I never had the, the black fingernail polish on a regular basis. Occasionally I did. But especially when I went to this performing arts high school, there were like real goths there. They were pros. I was a pretender. What separates so an amateur goth from a pro goth? Well, for the women, the black choker and the black lipstick, the cigarettes, I never liked smoking. And there aren't too many non-smoking goths. You are correct. And I, I hadn't fully gotten into that music until I was like 16, 17. Up until then, I was into hair metal and stuff like that. And that wasn't very goth at all to be like listening to Dokken. We're, we're going to come back to music in a bit, but I do want to talk about the health stuff. How did you discover that you needed to have the surgery? I had known that I had a slightly leaky valve, I was told years ago. I wasn't told it was going to be a big problem. But then right around the time the pandemic started, right when COVID really started getting into full swing here, I started having this feeling in my chest that I wondered, is this COVID? Because nobody really knew what COVID felt like at that point. But it seemed to be kind of stress related. And I'd had some acid reflux issues in the past. And so I didn't really think too much about it. And and then it got to the point where you couldn't really go to the hospital because everybody was so slammed in yep. the first wave of COVID. Those first seven, eight months, nobody was really going to the doctor unless it was you're in an ambulance or something. And then it was actually right around the 
the insurrection January 6th. And that was such a stressful couple days just watching TV. And also I had tweeted something that got people mad. And so when you start getting that heated feeling because something has gone viral and people are upset at you or yes. whatever. And, and I started having this really intense feeling in my chest. And I, I even said to my wife, this might be a heart attack. Like, I don't know what this is. And, and at that point I was like, all right, I should probably go check this out. And so I went to a, a cardiologist and he kind of laughed me off a little bit. He was a bit kind of dismissive, like, yeah, oh, your wife made you come, like one of those deals. Oh. And then I had the EKG. I remember sitting on the table because it's not like a sonogram where they take one of those cameras on a wand and they put goo on it and they rub it on you. Right. And the woman who's just like the technician for the EKG, she's not like a doctor or anything. She's like, your aorta is really big. And I, I said, thank you. I, I don't know <laughs> if that's a compliment or what. And, and then she got kind of weird after that. And then they sent me back into the cardiologist's office and I was in there for like an hour and I kept seeing the doctor and his attendant walk by and kind of make brief eye contact and keep walking. And then finally I was like, can somebody tell me what's what going, the hell's on? going on? Yeah. And well, and then they're like, uh, yeah, we should probably sit down and talk. And then they told me that I, I had an aortic aneurysm, which it's sometimes a genetic thing. It's mostly a genetic thing. And your aorta, which is the tube that comes out of the top of your heart, mine was just getting bigger. And if it ruptures, if it explodes, which it will eventually do, if you don't fix that, you die like that. Jonathan Larson, the guy who wrote the guy Rent. Rent. Yeah. Yeah. That's how he died. A bunch of people have died that way. It's, it's a rare thing, a relatively rare thing. But if your aortic aneurysm deviates or ruptures or whatever the term you want to use is, you're dead. Holy like shit. there's really no coming back. The, the cardiologist told me that even if it happens in the hospital, you're probably dead. And so they, they didn't need to strap me to a gurney and roll me into the operating room. But he said, you will have to have this surgery. There's nothing to be gained by waiting. So might as well get this on the books. And so I had about six weeks to mentally prepare and get all my ducks in a row. And my wife owns a performance venue. So we had to just make sure that everything was set so that I could uh, convalesce properly. But that was actually a year ago yesterday. Well, congratulations on your anniversary. You're still here. Which is fantastic. Yes, I am. Yeah. I am. I, or am I? Just a simulation. <laughs> I could be in some sort of limbo state right now. Wouldn't that be weird if like the afterlife was just a never ending podcast? That would be weird. <laughs> that would be super weird. Let's, let's not even think it's about like, that. Yeah, it's like a third tier Black Mirror episode. <laughs> I would have to imagine you were scared shitless. I mean, it's funny because the surgeon, my actual surgeon, not the cardiologist, but the, the guy who actually did the surgery was extremely good and extremely well-respected and walked me through all of it. And he told me that it was like a 90 to 95% survival rate. And so that obviously helped, but there's still a part of me that was like, yeah, but you don't know that I'm cursed. You don't know that this is my family thing right? and that we're all destined to have our hearts explode. So I definitely was nervous. I mean, obviously I was nervous just even for being successful because it was a long recovery. Honestly, the, the thing that was the hardest was they had to cut through my breastbone. And so having that heal and not being able to pick things up. And sometimes you would just without thinking, try to shift in bed and it would just be the worst pain. It And oh my God, sneezing for about five months, sneezing was the worst. It was like a grenade going off in my chest. And so it ain't fun. I'll put it that way. But... <laughs> 
Wow. That's pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, it's it's <laughs> the point of my life where people start having health stuff. So hopefully I got mine out of the way early. Out of the way, absolutely. A, a blissful, completely healthy life. Indeed. I'm going to try to ask this as sensitively as possible. Does it feel weird to have, I mean, I, I'm assuming you only had the two other siblings? Yeah. I, I had a stepbrother and a stepsister for a while, okay. but they were, my dad married my best friend's mother in high school. Oh, wow. And so my stepbrother, who's my best friend, like we were like related for 15 years. And so that was nice, but I never thought of him as my brother. He's my friend who our parents happened to live together. But yeah, no, it was just the two of them though. Okay. Being the last surviving sibling and being a relatively young man, like does, I, I remember reading of all people, a Patty LaBelle's book, and she talks about how this was 25 years ago. She'd already outlived all of her siblings. And it bothered her. Yeah, I won't lie. That is definitely something that I stumble with a lot. I think because my younger brother was so sick when he actually passed away, it was a long time coming. There was no shock to it. Mm. And he was eight years younger than me. So I do remember days when he wasn't around. But my older brother dying, who was two years older than I was, and just had a sudden heart attack, just died, you know, just got a phone call. That definitely has been weirder for me to process just because we weren't terribly close. We actually fought quite a bit, but it's almost like I knew who I was in comparison to him in a way, the ways that we were different kind of helped me reinforce who I thought I was. And with him being gone, I had a harder time figuring out exactly who I am. And uh, also just there's certain memories that I have that he was the only one who would be present for. And so there's just a whole set of topics that I can't speak to anybody about because my dad traveled a lot when we were kids. And so he wasn't around all the time. And also he's kind of an aloof 77 year old dude. He doesn't remember like, Hey, remember that kid who used to live down the street? And so that's a drag. I wish I could have known him in my 40s. I feel like we would have had a much better relationship. Although I do worry that he would have been like a MAGA dude. He died in 2007 and he had started to listen to Glenn Beck. Oh, God. And and that bothered me. And I'd like to think that he'd be the kind of guy who when things got crazy, he would have cut bait and been like, all right, these people are insane. But I, I can't promise that. I don't know. And I do wonder how that would have been. Wow. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? So with all of that stuff and your health and just the way the world is right now, what are the things well, that bring you, whether they bring you light or they bring you peace, what are the things that, that make Christian The healthy grow? ones or, or... I mean, either. There's, <laughs> Sometimes I mean, healthy I, I, is relative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly I have food issues and consumption issues in general. And so that's something I try to defend against, but I don't always succeed in terms of overeating or just eating crap or drinking a lot. And I never got into hard drugs at all, but putting stuff in my mouth, <laughs> that's the negative thing. The positive thing is I love listening to music. And my wife is one of those people who is super good at finding productive hobbies or hobbies that are uh, elevating 
She's uh, gotten super into ice skating in the past year and a half or so. Huh. Yeah, she goes to these two different ice skating facilities here in Queens. And she's from Texas, so she didn't grow up around that kind of stuff. And she comes home and she's just glowing, just pure joy. And she's way more stressed than I am because she runs a business and she has employees and it's a real stressful career. And then she also watercolors. And so I'm trying to learn from her, but it doesn't really take with me quite as well. I don't know why. I want to be a, a hobby type person. I keep trying to force myself to pick up hobbies, but they don't stick as much as I'd like. I've been doing uh, two years of Duolingo, if that makes any difference. What language are you learning? Swahili. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be fucking great. <laughs> how, how, fluent, uh, yeah, how fluent would you say you are? Oh my God. So not at all. It was so depressing. A couple weeks ago at QED, which is the the venue that my wife owns, we had a, a meetup, like a Spanish meetup for people to come and try. And like three months before the pandemic started, we actually had a meetup and I thought, hey, I've been taking Spanish for three months now. I bet I'll be able to have a conversation. Not even remotely. Well, now cut to two years later and I've been doing Duolingo every day. I have not slacked. I mean, certain days I do more than other days, but man, we had this meetup last week and I could not carry a conversation and it was so demoralizing. I just haven't used it out loud. You really kind of have to throw yourself into the fire, I think, for your lizard brain to learn. And so I, I was very disheartened by how <laughs> bad my Spanish is. N- no es bueno. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, if you don't have the opportunity to conversationally engage with somebody on a regular basis, it's going to be really difficult for you to become fluent. Yeah, I was surprised at how poor it was because I generally am pretty good with language and stuff like that. So I'm determined now to get myself into more actual real world conversations with the people, even if I have to tax their patience. You got to start watching like uh, telenovelas or something like that. Yeah, I've heard people say that you should watch television shows in Spanish or whatever language, but Ooh. like watch Seinfeld or watch, you know, are we there yet? Or, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and so y- you can just pay attention to the words and not have to really be stumbling so much on who is this and what's going on here. And so I haven't taken that to heart, but any day now. That makes sense. I got two very different questions for you to sort of of close as a goth and as a performing artist and all that stuff uh i was never really truly a goth i was more of a a poet type dude who had goth aspirations all right as a pretentious (laughs) late 80s early 90s kid yes i'm familiar with that concept you definitely seem to be a little bit more uh in touch with the fluidity of masculinity than probably a lot of people our age and certainly more Mm -hmm. than people older than us was there ever a time period or is it something that you still wrestle with like traditional bro masculinity versus liking poetry and doing theater and that sort of stuff yeah i mean definitely i had a lot of girls assumed I was gay at some point. What I would get is, you remind me of my friend, he's gay. I would get that a lot. (laughs) I remember freshman orientation of college, making out with some girl who said that to me or whatever. And we were literally making out. And and she said, I'm sorry, I just can't help but get the feeling that you're doing this to prove something to yourself. (laughs) What what was your response? 
I was like, okay, can we go back to making out now? No, it's always been a strange combination because I was never like a hyper rugged masculine dude, but I was pretty hung up on girls and hooking up and stuff like that. So I, I, I felt very much like a wussy non-man when I was around the football kids in my school and growing up. But then when I went to this performing arts high school, I was the manliest dude there. And so by comparison, I felt like the rock. Is he manly? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Dwayne Johnson. I, I, yeah, I don't know. He's not even really. I don't know. Yeah. Who would you? I don't know. There's no real positive. John Cena. But even those guys, I feel like, are, yeah, I mean, those guys are, I guess, more traditionally yeah. masculine, but they're still not, I think, like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. No, like, no, you know. no, they're yeah. certainly not. I was trying to think of like a guy who's like that, but who isn't a douchebag in there. That can be hard. Yeah. I feel like Dwayne but, Johnson um, would be the closest yeah. we come to that. Perhaps I do still wrestle with it sometimes. And sometimes I worry that I take on, I have a lot of very stereotypically male traits, but they're the negative ones in terms of self-isolating and the way a lot of men do, especially as they get older, they stop making friends, they stop being around other people, or they start just living a, 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 a boring life almost intentionally they kind of stop experiencing new things they stop going to see new movies they stop listening to music i think that happens to a lot of dudes as they enter their 40s and so that's something i've been acutely aware of trying to push back on um but there's also just certain things about manhood that just have never clicked with me like i do not give a fuck about grilling but you like I food christian i love food cook it anywhere you want <laughs> cars is the same way yeah I don't, whatever I don't that chip is Maybe it's because I've been in New York for so long. We have a car, but it's to get us places. I've n- Whatever that chip is in men, it's just like, I really want to learn about carburetors or whatever. I just I could not give a bigger fuck. <laughs> so well, It's nice to be talking to a straight guy who doesn't give a shit about cars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get it. But also the sort of notion of collecting is a very guy thing. I mean, we came into contact because I'm writing this music newsletter and I've always been a, a real big music dork. But I always felt a little like a fraud because I'm not a big collector. Back in the CD era, I had the giant wall bookcase with thousands of, oh, yeah, now we're talking. Yeah, see, I had two of those. And at the time, it felt like a real trophy. A girl's going to come over and she's going to see how much music I have. And ostensibly, if she's in your apartment, she's probably going to have sex with you anyway. But she's extra going to have sex (laughs) with me. I love all these CDs. (laughs) Oh, dude. When I was in college, I was in an elevator and I was whistling a song by Smashing Pumpkins off their very first album, this album called Gish. And she said, is that Smashing Pumpkins? And it was like the hottest thing that's ever happened to me. And I think I spent the next 15 years of my life when I was around an attractive woman just whistling some <laughs> obscure song that in the off chance that she'd be like, oh my God, is that like, and I didn't fully realize that's what I was doing, but it was one of those things like, Finnegan, what are you doing? Stop God. it. Nobody cares. But anyway, I have a record player, but I'm not a vinyl obsessive. And I think a lot of times that those things aren't really musical. Those are collector imp- impulses. Yeah. And it's a, a way for guys who aren't hyper physical to still feel alpha. Like I have acquired all of this gear. And so that's one of the re- the reasons I, I wanted to start this newsletter is that I wanted to just lean into the notion of like, you can just be into listening to music and you don't have to be able to name 
the, the the best equalizer or you don't have to have the, the the most amazing vinyl setup. You can just actually listen to music on your iPhone and enjoy it. Right. Right. Yeah, I get that. I'm a collector. I don't give a shit about sound quality. I don't care about equipment, but I like records. I've been collecting records since I was a kid. So that's- and, and I love records too. I, I, I have a bunch of records, but I'm just saying, to me, it's a tertiary. It's on a parallel track to enjoying music. Right. Obviously, it's like indulging in listening to new music and collecting vinyl and collect it like that they go hand in hand, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Right. That I don't look at somebody who has hundreds and hundreds of of albums and assume, oh, this person has great taste in music. I don't <laughs> make that assumption at all. As you should know too many people that that's not. The yeah, case. as you should absolutely not do that. And that's funny because it actually leads into my other question, which was to tell us about new music for olds and, and what led you to do that. Yeah, I've only been doing it like not even quite three months yet, but it's honestly, I think like a lot of people over the past couple of years, I've I felt a bit in a rut and not kind of a what's it all worth and why is it worth doing anything kind of thing. And my career was kind of already in a lull before the pandemic started. And so the pandemic didn't really help things. I didn't have people chomping at the bit, begging me to be on their television shows and stuff like that, which is fine. I never really enjoy any of that anyway. Oh, I hate acting. I mean, I like the actual physical act of doing it, but the life of an actor, the things that that is required, auditions, just uh, the whole world I find loathsome, which is why I stopped doing it in college in the first place. Because gotcha. I just, yeah, being around actors. It, <laughs> but I just kind of wanted something that was just for me and that was fun. And that I could do and that I didn't have to ask permission. Like even doing podcasts, I learned how to run GarageBand and how to edit, but I'm not good at that. It's not really where my talents are. And so it would take me forever. During the pandemic, I started trying to work on a podcast, but I was doing it all myself and I just didn't have the patience. I don't have the attention span. And so this newsletter thing, I was like, I could just do this. Nobody can stop me from doing it. It's technically pretty easy. And honestly, I just wanted something that felt fun and that I look forward to doing. And it's already succeeded on those terms. And so anything more would be lovely. And I've had a nice response from the people who read it, but it's really just to give me something to do that doesn't feel like work. That's awesome. And you're an engaging writer. I, I Slow as fuck. It takes me so long to write. That's uh, the other stumbling block is that having the deadlines is necessary for me because I will rewrite the same sentence 42 times and then I'll rewrite it so often that I'll realize that I've changed the tense too late. Oh, wow. And so when I actually send it out, it'll go from like first person to third person and be like, you motherfucker. <laughs> For me, it's all about being engaging. You don't have to be correct necessarily. Yeah, like I, I, to, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been another nice thing, too, is that it's like I literally can write this any way I want. It doesn't have to be a certain way. It doesn't have to come across a certain way. I'm trying to write something that I would want to read, which is very simple advice that I have never followed in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> and so I'm trying to follow it now. Keeping it conversational is always a good thing. And I, I get the whole rut thing. I think a lot of us do to a lot of things in the last, say at the very least, the last six years have found ourselves in ruts yep. of varying types and varying sorts. And it's nice to be able to find something to shake yourself out of it. Now, have you actually discovered a lot of new music in the three months you've been doing this? Yeah, a ton. I mean, it's something I did anyway. Every Friday night, 
or Friday, like Thursday at midnight. So after midnight becomes Friday and that's new release day. Yes. And so I would just lay in bed and just listen to new releases all night. And it's just what I enjoy doing anyway. And so that was kind of another reason. It's like rather than think about, well, what kind of things should I write? I wanted to just look at my life and be like, oh, all right, Finnegan, what do you actually do? What do you literally do? And is there anything there that you can turn into a creative enterprise rather than being like, I should write a novel that would make people think I was important or whatever. Well, what are you actually spending your time doing? And one of the answers was listening, just going through new releases and just clicking, playing, seeing what I like. And I know that my life is always markedly better when I have a a new song that I love. It's just 15% better. And so I figure there might be other people who are our age who just have kind of stopped because especially with algorithms now it's like you'll just end up listening to the same shit you listened to in the 90s you're just going to keep listening to better than ezra (laughs) (laughs) it's yeah it is really easy to get stuck in that i work in the music industry so i think i maybe have a little bit of a leg up sure on other people my age but even i find myself it's like i used to do the new music friday thing every friday and then I was like, mm-hmm. this shit sucks, man. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. And I'll pick two or three things and give them a listen. But increasingly now I find myself going back to the 80s and 90s. And yeah. even if it's discovering stuff from the 80s and well, 90s. Well, that's, that's the thing too. Is that, yeah. I mean, the free newsletter, which is every other week, I always include three new songs, new within the past month or so. But then on the off weeks for the paid subscribers, I'll have three songs that are just new to me that they might be from like the 60s or 70s or whatever, but that I'd never, it doesn't make you a better person just because you're into something that came out this month. But right. my whole point is just like something that's just new to your ear that gives you joy, that that new car smell. <laughs> Can you give your life that new car smell for 10 days? The only downside has been is that there's music that I discovered four weeks ago that I really loved that I feel like I've left a lot of meat on the bone in terms of my enjoyment because I've had to keep listening to new music before I would just listen to something until I got sick of it and then move on. And so definitely there's a feeling of, Oh, I've got to kind of make more time to enjoy the music that I have discovered. I don't know how, cause I only do three songs. There's a podcast I listen to sound opinions, which I, I love. And those dudes, these two rock critics in their probably fifties, they consume so much music. And I just always wonder how do you get any, enjoyment out of this past three listens because they have to listen to so much. It becomes a task. I wrote reviews probably up until five or six years ago. And I think part of the reason that I stopped was because I was just like, okay, now listening to music, which is something that I've enjoyed since I was old enough to know what music was, doesn't feel fun anymore. Yeah. Luckily, with something like a newsletter, I'm not so worried about right. that because who cares? And if I decided to take a couple weeks where I was just writing about a band instead of disco- discovering new music, like, you can I do feel whatever like you want. This newsletter is whatever I want it to be. There's no school principal who's going to tell me to come down to the office. It's whatever I want. And so, but yeah, that is definitely a, a factor of, of just getting tired of ears. Cool. So what's next? What what? It's a valid question. <laughs> I've been doing some shows recently with my friends, uh, Pete Dominic and Ophira Eisenberg. We, Pete Dominic, who he does a politics podcast, our social commentary and politics podcast called uh, Stand Up with Pete Dominic. And he used to be on Sirius XM for years. And during the pandemic, I started doing his podcast every, every Friday. 
And he has a really just great core of listeners, like really enthusiastic and smart. And then Ophira, who's a friend of ours, started doing it with us every Friday. And then we decided like, hey, we should start doing some shows together because to the extent that we have audiences, they overlap. She was a host on NPR for a long time. And I have some people who are convinced that I am bright and Pete's very smart. And so we have been touring under the name Smart Mouth and we had booked a lot of dates and then Omicron swept in, which got everything messed up again. And so we're trying to book dates again now, but as the numbers go up, it's really hard. So we have a few dates in the book, but it's not like a full tour. But that is something that I hope turns into something because we each do some stand up and then we also have like a group Q&A thing that we do, which is really fun. And um, I'm really just enjoying working on this newsletter. And, and of course, I'm always working on a new stand-up hour. And so I, I'm, I don't know, about a th- halfway there now. In my latest special, if anybody is listening, my latest stand-up special, which we sh- I shot during the pandemic, is called Show Your Work, and it is uh, streaming on uh, Prime Video. Very nice. And, okay, I swear to God, this is my last question. <laughs> okay, yeah. You mentioned a little earlier, as you get older, you're trying to not isolate yourself. And I think a lot of guys, in particular men our age have trouble figuring out how to make friends yes 100 percent. how does that does that play out for you how do you seek out people or do you seek out people have you convinced yourself to seek out people i try it doesn't take with me sometimes when you're a stand-up it's easy to tell yourself that that's not a problem because i see people all the time i go out and they do sets and they're like friends you know i'm friendly with a lot of people but in terms of actual real hardcore friendships I have my former stepbrother who lives in Massachusetts and another friend of mine from high school who lives in Maryland. But I don't know, it, it feels weird to try to make new friends. And I've tried a few times over the past few years. And for whatever reason, it just always felt like, uh, hey, well, this has been nice, but it's not working out. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I don't know. There's something, I don't like this trend of people very arrogantly proclaiming themselves to be introverts. I find that it gets on my skin like, oh, I'm such an introvert, which is basically like a backdoor way of saying I'm deep. But um, I don't think that introverts are any smarter or more interesting than extroverts. But I have definitely discovered that I maybe like being alone more than is totally healthy. And my dad, he's just living alone at this point in, in He has a dog now, but if it wasn't for the dog, he would never leave his apartment. And he seems happy with his life, but I don't know. He's in his 70s. I'm 49. I still should have a good 15 years of (laughs) getting out of the house and seeing people. Or more. My wife and I were talking about this last night. It's that half the reason that dudes end up being super into sports is that they need a way to be around other men, but they can't just be around other men. They have to sort of have a a framework right. to have it have a purpose. Well, know? yeah, because anything else um, is gay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or just vulnerable and intimate and right. weird and what are we doing here? It feels awkward. And I've always been in the opinion that's what secret societies are about as well, like the the Illuminati and all that. It's just a bunch of dudes who want to get away from their wives and I, need a reason. You know, I, I had a guest <laughs> on this show who is a, a Freemason, and, and oh, you know, wow. we, we talked a little bit about it. And I, we didn't get too deep into that part of it, but I do think it's also that and a lot of the reason for this podcast is that guys are so bad at having 
feelings and conversations and conversations about feelings um, uh, around other men. And it's just kind of like, okay, folks, it's 2022. We're middle-aged or whatever. It's time to kind of bust that down a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I aspire to be a better man and to sort of try to find the positive parts of that and highlight those a little more in terms of putting my back into problems more and involving myself in ways that maybe in the past I would have just kind of been like, hey, somebody else will deal with it. Not that that's just a man thing, but I think it's something that men struggle with more. I think a lot of men tend to have a, hey, first do no harm sort of attitude towards life. It's like, hey, if I'm not fucking things up, then that makes me a good person, right? But to actually proactively improve a situation feels scary or weird. Yep. Yeah, it's something we all got to do. And hopefully we continue to realize that we need to do that. Thank you, Christian, for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and talk. I really enjoyed the chat. If you're listening, I hope that you enjoyed too. So let's talk about where to find Christian. He discussed a couple of things that he's up to during the podcast. So in addition to that, there is New Music for Olds. Go to newmusicforolds.substack.com. Make sure you subscribe if you're a music fan. Christian has some hot recommendations for everybody. So make sure you check that out. On Twitter, uh, Christian has informed me that Twitter is his primary social media method of choice. You can follow him at Chris Finnegan, C-H-R-I-S-T-F-I-N-N-E-G-A-N. And I got to give a shout out to QED Astoria, which is the establishment that his wife runs in Astoria, Queens, New York City. Uh, I have performed there. Many of my friends have performed there. Uh, People that have been on this podcast have performed there. So if you want to know more about it, it is a great venue. Uh, QEDHistoria.com. If you're in New York City, make sure you visit. If you live in New York City, make sure you check it out. Thanks again, Christian, for participating in the podcast. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out. uh, Help us move up in the rankings. Uh, Follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool-ass sticker. Lots of stuff. Once again, Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. Quick shout-out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time, peace.